The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Welcome to Museum Life. This is Carol Bossert. Thank you for joining me today. I have a great guest. I know I say that every week, and I mean it every week. Uh, we, I have been running a series of programs that are pretty much alternating between heavy philosophy about museum and museum practice, particularly as we're uh, beginning to deal with the role of museum in community. And then I've been running a series, what I call sort of the practicum of museum work. Uh, as all of you know, my area of expertise is in exhibition design and development, and one aspect of that uh, tool in the toolbox, I should say, is often very overlooked. And therefore, I am pleased to bring uh, to your attention today one of my dearest friends in the, in the field, I will say, as well as one of the smartest people I know about the subject of lighting design. So we're going to be talking about light uh, today. And I have with me Stephen Rosen, who is the President and Creative Director of Available Light outside of Boston. And I know after you listen to Stephen, you will A, know a whole lot more about lighting design and why it is so valuable in museum exhibitions. And you'll also know a lot more about Stephen and uh, probably want to involve him in your next project. But before we get ahead of ourselves, Stephen, I want to welcome you to the show today. Well, thanks, Carol. It is just great to be here. So, Stephen, I ask all of my guests, and I'm going to ask you as well to share your career trajectory. Uh, people, you know, we always find it really fascinating how all of us from different backgrounds end up doing what we're doing. And so, how did you become a lighting designer? Well, I will try to take a long story and make it short. I, but it started with the seventh grade musical. Uh, I found uh, I was somehow involved. My brother had been involved in the theater in school, and so, of course, I followed along, but discovered early I wasn't really interested in trotting the boards and being in front of an audience, and I ended up in the little cabinet where the lighting was controlled, and uh, it was love at first sight, and 
I think I'm one of the few lighting designers around that knew that they were going to be a lighting designer in the seventh grade. So I started doing theater. I my whole um, my whole academic career uh, was studying stage design. I, I first went to UCLA, and then I ended up in a place called the Pacific Conservatory of the Performing Arts, uh, where I studied stage design. And then I got a Bachelor of Fine Arts from Webster College in St. Louis. And uh, I, I just hadn't had enough yet. I needed more school. So I ended up getting a Master's of Fine Arts from the Tisch School of the Arts at NYU. And in the, in the midst of that training uh, to be a stage designer, uh, one day an architect came to our class and told us a little bit about architectural lighting. And for, I think, everyone in the room, uh, they were as bored to tears. And, and except for me, my head just exploded. And I thought, wow, I had always loved architecture. And I thought, what a great way to combine what I, my love of light with buildings. So I went off and did a internship and uh, ended up all of a sudden doing a combination of architectural lighting and theatrical lighting. And uh, one day that led to my introduction to a museum exhibit designer, uh, an occupation that never occurred to me that that even existed. And uh, they asked if I would be interested in lighting a museum exhibit, and that ended up being my first, which was uh, the Air and Space Museum in Hampton Roads. So it was a it was an interesting unplanned journey, and uh, I could not be happier that it all happened to me. Well, that's a that is a great story, Stephen. And you are correct. You are you win the prize. You're the very first guest who knew exactly what what they were going to be doing from the seventh grade on. Uh, most of us uh, you know stumbled backwards into a variety of positions. But but uh, all kidding aside, what what you while there was perhaps a linearity in your trajectory, what you've brought to uh, the museum field, and we'll talk more about about this uh, later on in the program, is that understanding of light in buildings and also light in theater. And I, I know I, I, too, did a little stint in, in uh, theatrical design and realized that that probably was not where I was going to be uh, working. But what I've always loved about theatrical design is that one of the skills is taking just a little bit of uh, visual cue to suggest a much deeper and richer experience, and so I've always seen the parallel between what you uh, what you bring in in uh, uh, theater design to what uh, has been uh, what good museum exhibitions need to be. Well, that's that's music to my ears because that is it is oftentimes lost on people at the conscious level. I think at the subconscious level, people very much appreciate what we do, but it is it is uh, very much I think lighting design for a museum exhibition is very much at the nexus between theater and architecture because you, the the thought process, the way you go about building a design, the way you think about things, the way you communicate with your colleagues is all comes very it's very heavy the way we would do a theatrical production but the actual technical direction the equipment you choose dealing with engineers and energy codes and conservation issues that's all kind of uh, the geeky engineering part of lighting design and so it's it's a really great place for somebody who's got one foot in engineering and one foot in the arts uh, lighting is a perfect place to be 
That's great. That's great. So uh, before we get on in, in uh, uh, some of the, the geeky details, which I hope we do because I've, I've heard you speak of them before, and that's why I wanted to bring you on the show for all of my listeners because you make this subject amazingly clear, uh, <laughs> and, and I think that that is, is a real gift. But before we get into that, let me ask the obvious question of the day. What's light? Well, that's a big question. Th- this is an eight-hour show, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. This, is, this is only well, part I don't, one. Well, what is light? Well, there's, is it a photon? Is it a wave? Uh, you know, it's interesting. One of the things that I think is the most um, a romantic part of light is that it's unlike other tools in the toolbox of, in, the, in the world of design, in the world of visual design. It's, it's not like paint. It's not like textures on a wall. It's not something you can carry around in a bucket. But it affects everything we perceive in the visual world. Uh, And in fact, beyond the visual world, which is some new research that's been coming out over the last couple of years, which maybe we'll get into. But for the moment, um, everything you perceive about an object, a painting, a a textile, a a science museum, a German U-boat, whatever, whatever it is that you're lighting, everything you perceive, you perceive by contrast. And so what I mean by that is if you, if you light everything equally from all sides and it's all the same, you sort of deny the quality and the beauty of a particular thing because there's no highlight and shadow and so you don't have a sense of, of form. And, that's, and to me, more than anything, light is about revealing form. Um, in fact, from my theater training, one of the things I, I like to I like to work with my clients to do whenever I can is to kind of is to hide the corners of a room. You want people to be interested in why they came there, what the objects they came to see, the exhibit, the content, the story. And most times in a in a gallery, uh, in a science museum or a children's museum, it's not about the um, iconic architecture, but it's about the content in the room, and so. I always feel that part of my job is to use light to direct people's attention and to create a hierarchy so when they walk into a space, they know where to look, they know what they're supposed to look at, and hopefully they see something that is quite beautiful because of the way we work with contrast. So there's something kind of visceral about about working with light. You, know, you go all the way back to a, a burning campfire, which is a single-source light, so you can imagine that the contrast sitting around a campfire is really quite high. You only have light coming from one direction, and the shadows are very deep. And so you begin to create this strong emotional uh, quality or this this deep mood that you can create with lighting. And I think that's what gets me excited about it. And when I work with my clients to try to illuminate, no pun intended, <laughs> the meaning of what they're trying to communicate uh, to an audience I try to figure out how to do that visually with light. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so 
one of the well, there were several things that struck me, but one of the things that struck me is you you talked about creating a hierarchy of light. Now, I I certainly understand what we mean by say a hierarchy of content or you know sometimes graphics. You know, so we have here is the big headline of the story, and then there's the next important level of the story, and then maybe there's a little tiny uh, object label that's a very detailed bit of information that you might be interested in. But tell me about hierarchy and lighting. Well, I, it is it is a, a known fact in the lighting world, or certainly in the physiology world, that when you when you encounter a composition, when you walk into a space, uh, it is typically true that your eye goes to the brightest object in a room first. So you can begin to see just by that comment that the sense of creating a hierarchy in lighting is actually pretty easy to do. So if you're walking into a hotel, I'm sorry, a, a museum uh, lobby, uh, and you're, uh, you're uninitiated, you don't really know where you're going, but you do know you need to go to the bathroom, then what you, what you want to see in the lobby is the reception desk. Where's the reception desk? Where's the person that's going to tell me where I need to go? And so we would typically in a hierarchical sense, we would make sure that the reception desk is the brightest part of that composition. So you can see that you can, by extension, continue to play that hierarchical game where the reception desk might be the brightest, but then the entrance into the portal into the gallery or the sign over the gallery might be the second brightest thing. And so you begin to sculpt uh, an experience with lighting that's not only uh, wayfinding and directional, but it also helps to make transitions. So if you're going from a bright space, like a, maybe a bright daylit lobby, and you're walking, you're in a, uh, an air and space museum, and the first exhibit is a space gallery, well, you can imagine that that gallery is probably going to be pretty dark. And so if you take a person, you just imagine when you, walk in, when you walk inside a room after being outside, sometimes it's very difficult uh, to get oriented because your eyes have not caught up with the darkness, your irises haven't opened up, your brain hasn't figured out that the levels of light are much lower. And so just be able to, being able to create a transition zone so you can get from a bright space to a dark space is, is also part of what we do. So it's part of creating that visual path and helping, tell that, and helping to tell the story so that you're ready, to, you're ready to receive more information when you come through that transition zone. Yeah. Wow. I... I... I never really thought about it in a storytelling way or an 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 access way. I guess one of the things that that uh, I picked up along the way, you know, going back to theater design, is a, a professor of mine. A, 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 in summer school, once said, "Well, you know, no one will ever notice." the lighting, uh, particularly, uh, but they'll notice when it's bad. <laughs> well, uh, you know, and, it, you know, to each person you ask, what does bad mean, you probably get a different answer. Um, but to me, the, the, the worst thing that you can do with lighting is point lights in people's eyes. Um, <laughs> and, and that is a classic problem where someone who is not as attuned to thinking about light and how people react to it, both in terms of what they're seeing, because of light, because when you're looking at something, what you're seeing is light reflected off of that object. 
so you want that reflected light to come at you, but if you've got the actual light fixture pointed in your eyes, that's a real problem because you've got glare and you've got eye fatigue and you've got people turning away. Uh, and so this sense of sculpting light to lead you through a place, it's very important that you consider uh, geomet geometry is one of our biggest tools in lighting design uh, and, and figuring out not only how to make an object look good based on geometry, but also how to keep the light out of people's eyes. Well, I do think keeping the light out of people's eyes is a very good first <laughs> rule of lighting design. I agree. Well, and I, I would think, too, it, I love geometry, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about that uh, more. But the other thing about light that is also different from, say, paint is that you can't curve it. Well, there are some physicists in some labs right now who are trying to prove you wrong, but I would, for the moment, uh, let's stick with that concept, that you, it does not go around corners. Uh, and it also, uh, it also probably more important to this conversation is it also very much affects when you say paint, when you talk about paint or you talk about color uh, perception, the color of the light greatly affects the color of an object that you're going to see. And you can, and, and there are both extreme examples of that, but probably more interesting are the very subtle examples of that. And what I mean by that is, is that um, I often ask this question, what is white light? Because it's, it's a very big subject and it's a very broad subject. And if you think about, um, if we go back to the campfire example I used earlier, if, if, you're, if your guests that are listening right now can sort of conjure that up in their mind, they're probably thinking about almost a reddish-orange light. But in fact, they would consider that white light. If you're outside on a winter day up here in New England, and it's crisp and it's white, and you look down at your shadow and you see a blue shadow, that's because the white light that's coming from the north sky is contrasting with sunlight, which is a warmer color, and you begin to see blue light, but it's really white light. And so by tuning the color temperature, this is called color temperature, by tuning that color temperature, you can begin to almost imperceptibly tune the way people are going to react to an object. For instance, I have a colleague who's a lighting designer in Washington, and uh, he had a real problem lighting a painting uh, because the artist that created, that created the painting had actually used, had mixed some paint into the varnish, the final varnishes and sealers on the painting. And over time, the varnishes, of course, started to yellow. And when that happened, so did the paint. It started to change its quality. And when the cons conservationists looked at the painting, and because they were, the, muse the museum wanted to fix the problem, the conservationists said, well, we can't really fix this because, because the paint is in the varnish. We can't remove the varnish because then we would lose the, the context of the artist's work. And so what my colleague ended up doing was, rather than lighting the painting with an incandescent or warm colored white light, he actually boosted the color temperature to a much bluer white, and the painting almost came to life again only by shifting a slight shift of, of white. So that's, those are fascinating ways of using light. That Oh, that's so interesting. Uh, 
I'm not going to, I don't think I'll ever look at paintings the same way. Um, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. That, no, that's a, and that's a great place to uh, stop just for a moment. We're going to take the first of two breaks. And when we come back, more about painting with light, lighting design uh, with uh, Stephen Rosen of Available Light. So stay tuned. We, there's more to come. We'll be back in a moment. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Carol Bossert established CB Services, LLC, because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content. And at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com. Reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn or call her directly at 240-432-7712. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert, and uh, today I'm talking with Stephen Rosen, who is uh, President and Creative Director of Available Light, and we are talking about light, specifically looking at uh, the role lighting plays in exhibit design. And right before we went to break, Stephen was telling us a wonderful story that illustrates how important lighting is, say, to looking at paintings and making sure that the lighting, in fact, allows us as viewers to see the painting the way the artist intended it to be uh, when when it was originally created, and that there are sometimes even some subtle and not so subtle ways that uh, lighting can, in fact, improve the way we uh, look at a particular artwork uh, that perhaps uh, has been irreversibly aged by by time. Uh, Stephen, thanks so much for for sharing that that story with us. And so I guess then my next question is 
when you are working, say, on a, a painting exhibition or an art exhibition, how do you and the curator decide what it was supposed to look like? Well, that's uh, that's a very interesting question, and uh, you know, oftentimes, uh, whether it's a painting or lighting or or trying to create recreate a setting, there has to be some interpretation on the part of the curator, especially about the setting that this painting wants to be viewed in. Um, very often, a, an artist would go out and sketch a scene, and then bring it back to their studio, and maybe paint it under artificial light, or paint it under a combination of artificial light and um, and uh, daylight, and so it's it's almost impossible unless there are you know outstanding notes about how you know the conditions by which a work of art was created to recreate that light back in the back in the museum. So I think a lot of discussion happens about the setting of the painting, uh, the setting of the, lo- the location, and trying to tune the light so that it it feels that it, it without over. Uh, emphasizing any one particular element of the painting um, creates a story and creates a through line that feels as if when we look at the painting, it's how the artist looked at the painting. But sometimes there's a lot of uh, conjecture there and a lot of discussion. Sure, sure, and and while I, I guess we're on this on this subject, uh, and you had mentioned this earlier, it, it lighting, of course, is not simply uh, an aesthetic, uh, creating the aesthetic experience. There's also uh, conservation and, as you said, some energy codes. How do you balance all three of those? Well, I, 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 frankly, that's exactly, that's exactly the role that a lighting designer plays. You know, the thing that is probably most interesting to a lighting designer is trying to help serve the content and serve the story of whatever it is that's being presented. But along the way, you're, you're constantly playing a balance game. If you're lighting something like many years ago, I lit, I lit Abraham Lincoln's hat. And in order to put that in context, the conservators, because light has a degradating quality on objects uh, over time, the idea is you in order for, in order to preserve an object for a long for many generations we've come up with these rules these conservation rules about minimizing the amount of light we have, we put on an organic object uh, at any given time a and over time so how how many hours it's subjected to how little light and so we are constantly uh, trying to figure out ways to make something that's lit at a very, very low level interesting, dramatic, and make you want to kind of lean in and see better. And one of the ways to do that is back to a word I used earlier today, which is contrast. If you have a, if you have a dark object that you can't light very brightly, then it's important that it be in an area and in a surrounding that's even darker than the, than the object itself so that even a small amount of light feels like a generous, uh, a generous amount so that you can see and enjoy the object. The other problem that we're constantly trying to balance, as you brought up, is um, when you're lighting a museum exhibit, maybe less something that's, that's artifact-rich, that has very low lighting conservation levels, but maybe something like in a science museum or a children's museum that's bigger and brighter and maybe has a, a show component to it and dynamic lighting changing across the course of the day or over the course of minutes. 
is we are there are limitations on the amount of energy that the lighting can consume in a building, and that changes by jurisdiction. So it, it not only changes by country, but it, and not by state, but even by city. Uh, different cities may have their own energy code, which makes it even more constraining than the national codes. So we're constantly playing a balancing game between the idea of what we want to do versus uh, legislatively what we can do in terms of using the amount of light that we use. So between the conservation question and the energy code question, and of course there's that other that other word which I hate, which is budget, uh, we also have to, of course, balance the budget that we have to spend. So it's, it's, it becomes, in a sense, it's a game. It's like any other thing. You've, you, have a, you have a goal, uh, and how do you balance all those things to get to your goal? Well, and I would suspect that uh, some of the new technologies, uh, particularly with, with uh, you know, now the omnipresence of LED light, uh, has probably changed the way you look at that equation. Well, Carol, for 25-ish years of my career, 20 to 25-ish years of my career, the changes in lighting technology were incremental. Uh, you know, every year somebody would build a slightly better spring for a mousetrap. Uh, but it was relatively easy for, for both me and my colleagues to keep up with the, the, the uh, slow pace of change in the lighting industry. And then this little thing called an LED came along, and my, uh, my occupation exploded in terms of what we had to know, why we had to know it, and how to best take advantage of this new and revolutionary technology. It is really, uh, it has been a game changer in terms of technology. But I also want to say, I think what's really important about this is that it has not changed how we approach a design. It hasn't changed how we're trying to tell a story or elucidate the meaning of content. But the LED has been... uh, a very big new tool in our toolbox. Uh, I would actually go so far to say it has become the only tool in our toolbox, um, which is re- it's remarkable to even hear myself say that, but it has become true. And there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, an LED producer, an LED requires about 10% of the energy that an incandescent light bulb requires. So you can see that you're getting a huge savings in electricity by using an LED over uh, a traditional conventional source. It also uh, um, is very small, so you can package them in a form factor and in a way that is very different than conventional lighting fixtures. So if you have a a curving exhibit wall, you can design a light fixture that follows along those curves in an almost parallel way. It's very exciting to be able to do that. Uh, Another thing that is great about an LED, and this goes back to our earlier discussion in terms of tuning color, and again, there's, there's gross ways to change color, meaning, you know, red to blue to green. But the thing that's more compelling and interesting to me about this color tuning is this fine tuning of, of the what is white light, you know, from a sort of a warmish incandescent color to a cooler uh, sky color at high noon. The LED allows us to either dynamically, meaning over time in a room, tune the color of the light so it parallels the day, or 
tune the color of the light to best bring out an effect that the curator and the other and the other members of the design team are trying to to bring out of an object. And then another particularly useful thing about an LED is you can tune an LED so it has no ultraviolet or infrared energy. So from a, so from a conservationist point of view, this is like striking pay dirt because you no longer have to use any kind of filtration or other methods for removing those harmful rays that came out of traditional sources or conventional sources. The, the LED out of the box can be tuned so it doesn't have that, that degradating energy. Those are, those are basically um, rays of light that are not visible to the human eye, but they can be quite damaging. And so why have it in the source at all? Just take it out. So now the only other thing we have to worry about is how much light we're using on a, on a delicate object. But it makes it much easier to deal with that object because you don't have all the constraints that come with UV and IR. Well, and I I, uh, I know from several projects that I've been on recently, it has uh, revolutionized and in some ways uh, made cases much less expensive because we don't need to worry about heat buildup anymore. That's correct. So the, the and that gets to the heart of you might ask why is the LED so much more energy efficient than the incandescent light? And that is because the incandescent light is mostly a heater. It mostly creates heat, and then there's a little bit of visible light that you can then direct at things so you can see things. The LED also creates heat, but not nearly as much, a fraction of the amount of heat. And because there's no IR in the beam of light, as there is in an incandescent light, you're not subjecting an object to that IR technology. So by, by wicking a lot of the heat out of uh, the equation, you're right. Things can get smaller. They can be more delicate and more intricate and more and feel more integrated into the architecture of an exhibit. Well, I would. So those are all of the uh, those are all of the upsides. And of course, we know as consumers, uh, you know, there the uh, the era of the incandescent light bulb is on its way out. Um, you know, from a, a legal standpoint, and now there are all these other opportunities for these LED bulbs. But the good news, and as a consumer, is that those bulbs fit my light sockets. Um, what about these poor museums that are having to re-create uh, re, uh, their entire lighting scheme because the light bulbs don't fit anymore? Is that a, is that a real concern? Well, in fact, in fact, no. Um, mo uh, when we first uh, were stumbling out of the gate with the LED, um, there were enormous problems with, um, you know, somebody would say, you have a PAR lamp, I have the same PAR lamp and LED, I'm just going to send you this lamp and it's going to go into your light fixture and you'd open up the box and the light bulb looked kind of the same as the light bulb you were replacing. But then you would go to put it in the fixture and darn it, it didn't fit. Or the, or the door that closed across the light bulb wouldn't close because the, the LED retrofit, which is what they're called, retrofit lamps, was not exactly the same as the old technology. But over time, you know, it's interesting with the LED, when the LED became popular, uh, the number of manufacturers making light sources went from, I don't know, four or five to hundreds because this is a solid state technology and anybody who is in the space of building solid state technology for transistors and resistors and chips and all these other electronics things, 
because they had the technology to build a solid state, they could easily convert to making solid state lighting. So these incredibly smart people were making devices that put out light, but they didn't understand light. <laughs> and so <laughs> it, it took, I would say, a decade for, for the chip heads and the lighting experts to sort of get into a room and talk to one another and say, here's why this has to go a certain direction. Uh, and I'm happy to report that for the most part, those headaches of the early days of LED are over. And so when you go to do a retrofit lighting installation, it's much, it's much more clear and much more direct. But there, are, but there, are still, there still remain reasons why people who do not necessarily truly understand the technology can get themselves into trouble. This has to do with uh, dimming. Uh, because dimming an LED is complicated, and there are many ways to do it, and you have to make sure you, you like a sommelier, you pair the right LED lamp with the right dimmer so that they work together. Uh, and it also has to do with color temperature and consistency and beam angle. There's a lot that goes into a lighting design that obviously a lighting designer knows about, and maybe a lighting designer created the original lighting, and, and a curator or a, a, a facilities person in a museum is, is saying, I see the benefits of LED. I'm going to jump on the LED bandwagon. They, they spend a lot of money uh, to replace their incandescent light with an LED retrofit, and then they look at the exhibit and they go, well, now it doesn't look good anymore. I've, I've completely lost the layers of light and the, and the spotlights and the color and the beauty. And so... I guess I would just hasten your audience that uh, you just can't, if you just run out and make these changes without consulting people who might help you keep the story alive, you could get into some real trouble. Oh, that's, that is a very, very good point, that a little knowledge can be a dangerous thing. Exactly uh, right. <laughs> well, we are, this is a, another good point to break. We are going to uh, take another short break. And when we come back, uh, we've been in the weeds a little bit. We're going to pull back a little bit to the uh, my favorite topic, the philosophy of uh, exhibition development and working with teams and where the lighting designer fits into that. So please stay tuned. Uh, this is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. We'll be back in a moment. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Carol Bossert established CB Services LLC because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content, and at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com, reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn, or call her directly at 240-432-7712. News. Opinion. Hear me. Hear me. 
Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bosser. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert, and I'm talking lighting today with Stephen Rosen, who is the president and creative director of Available Light, uh, also a colleague of mine in the Praxis Museum's project group. Uh, I'll just say before we wind down to the end of the show, if you like what you, you hear, I know that Stephen would be delighted to talk to you more about lighting. So just uh, find him on Google or LinkedIn uh, or on the website. Just uh, uh, look for Available Light. It is an easy thing, uh, an easy business name to remember. Stephen, I think that that, you do have the absolute best name uh, for a lighting designer that that I've run across, so congratulations on that, too. Why, thank you. I I remember when the first time I heard that that particular phrase, you know, how you often hear a phrase and you say, that would be a good name for a band. I thought, that would be a good name for a company. Great, great. So, um, let's, Stephen, you and I um, are both come on to projects sometimes as, you know, sort of the what we call the loyal subcontractors, uh, you know, the the uh, the loyal specialties uh, that are coming on to make a make a project worthwhile. So, I'm going to ask you um, first: When are you usually brought on to a project? Well, you know, I, it, this is a bit of a training process with our clients. The clients that we've had for a long time, I think, have a better sense of when it's time to pick up the phone and say, okay, uh, available, we're ready to talk to you. We, we feel like we, have, we, we understand enough, but not too much, that we're ready to talk to you. And what, I'm, what I mean by that is uh, very often – uh, because people think of lighting more as an engineering experience than as an artistic experience, they think, well, we're getting into the construction documents, which means the final phase of design, when basically all the choices have been made, all the designs have been solidified, and now it's time to document the design so that it can go out to bid and be built. And so that's the time to call a lighting designer. Well, that's a terrible time to call a lighting designer, because by then... The, all of the all of the uh, uh, content that comes with a lighting designer, it's oftentimes too late to integrate those ideas, those great ideas, uh, into a design package. So I often say, if if uh, funds are limited for a lighting designer, I often say to my clients, call me in early and cut me loose, uh, rather than waiting until it's too until the, the process is already complete and then ask me what I think. What I mean by that is that uh, the lighting uh, wants to be organic and integrated into not only the architecture of the exhibit and the exhibit structure, but also into the story. How can we help expand and illuminate the story in ways that make it more interesting to the visitors? And if we we are brought in 
uh, in construction documents, again, like I said, when things are being built, uh, we're not, I can oftentimes, you know, I'll sit down with a designer and they'll explain to me what they're doing and I'll say, oh, well, if we, if we take this line of LED lights and we use a, a color-changing fixture and we build it into the exhibit behind a fascia, think of all the magical things that are going to happen on this exhibit about space travel. And, that's, and the exhibit designer looks at me and says, that's a fantastic idea and we can't do it. And the reason they can't do it is because where they are in the schedule doesn't allow for those that creative treatment of lighting to be integrated into the exhibit. So I guess that was a long answer to say better to be called in early than uh, and let loose early rather than to come into the middle of a process and and be there till the end. I th- I think that is um, is so very important and and uh, I I feel the same same way I've. I've always advocated to to my clients as well that if we can bring everyone around the table with all of their specialties, which is certainly a, an approach that is used in other creative endeavors of theater mm-hmm. uh, um, and uh, even architecture, where everyone can uh, understand the core part of the project, what the goals are, what the experience needs to be, and add their little bit of magic and expertise uh, as opposed to a, a sequential, here, now it's your turn, now it's your turn, now it's your turn. I think certainly I find it a much more rewarding experience, and I suspect you do too. A- absolutely, and, and I refer to myself as a lighting designer, not a lighting consultant, and, that's, and, and there's, a, there's a real reason for that. The consultant sort of comes in at the end and you know, waves their magic wand. A designer gets down in the dirt with everybody and wants to you know, mix, up, mix up the paint and make it right. That's um, that's so Im- so uh, very important. So I'm going to um, then ask you if um, what are the most important questions that someone should ask when they're selecting a lighting designer? Other than, are do you consider yourself a designer or a consultant? <laughs> Uh, well, I guess I guess there's a couple of there's a couple of key things that you would want to think about when you're when you're uh, considering hiring a lighting designer for your project. Uh, of course, the first thing, and I, I certainly I do believe this, is experience. You know, you, it's when when you're handing somebody a great responsibility, both in terms of a financial responsibility because you're basically hiring a lighting designer to spend a lot of money, so you want to make sure that they have done something similar before and have a sense of the responsibility and the weight of doing this right because they've done it before. So first of all, do they have experience? And one of the things that gets tricky about experience is, as we were talking about earlier, lighting design for museum exhibition is kind of at that nexus between theater and architecture. So there are not a lot of us out there who specialize in museum exhibit lighting. So you're mostly going to talk to either a lighting designer who works in architecture or you're going to talk to a theatrical lighting designer about this project. And if you're not careful, if you go with, say, a theatrical lighting designer who's never done a museum exhibit, you may find that they're, they're using the kind of hardware and using the techniques that they would use in a theater, which is more of a temporary situation than a museum exhibit that's going to last for 30 to 50 years. And if you go with an architectural lighting designer, you may find that they're not thinking about telling the story and getting involved in the content. So experience is number one. Uh, 
Number two would be to get a sense of their creativity. And when I use the word creativity, I really mean problem solving. How have these people solved problems in the past? Do you feel that the challenge that you have before you is well suited to the kind of creativity and problem solving person that's sitting across from you in an interview? And, and I guess finally, the, the third most important thing would be chemistry. You know, when you're working on a museum exhibit, you're going to be living with that person for anywhere from three to eight or ten years. And so is there some common ground that they see the world the way you see the world and are you going to be able to communicate and, and get on with this thing for many, many years? So I guess those would be kind of the three big things. Those are those are very uh, very good pieces of advice for anyone looking for uh, a lighting designer, and I do think that <clears throat> excuse me the uh, uh, the aspect of chemistry can't really be overstated because uh, no. I suspect your your clients as as mine uh, those are long term relationships. I mean, there are marriages that don't last as long as some of the relationships. Absolutely we have with true. Our it's, it's and and I think that is why the, the, we 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 work with the same people over and over again is you begin to develop a shortcut. You know, it's like, oh, remember when we did that? Oh, yeah, I remember that. We'll do that again. <laughs> you know, right. you sort of finish each other's sentences, and uh, it's, it's great. So um, can you share with me, uh, with us, some of, uh, some of your more interesting projects? What one are you most proud of? Oh, most proud of. Oh, they're all my children, Carol. <laughs> yeah, um, I know. I know. Well, so Sophie's choice. Pick one. <laughs> so um, I suppose one of the first projects that, that comes to my mind is um, a couple of years ago, we, we relit uh, the rotunda of the National Archives in Washington. That's the, the room where the, the charter documents are, which is the, uh, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. And if ever there was a balancing act uh, between architecture and technology and conservation, it was this project. And so there were a lot of problems to solve, uh, both creatively and technically, that was really kind of a gas for a lighting designer. So I guess because the project came out quite well, uh, I'm happy to say, I hope you'll all go see it, uh, and that's an all-LED installation, by the way, um, that's probably the one that sort of rests in my heart is the one I'm most proud of. But I guess a, a close second would be now for something completely different. Uh, also a couple of years ago, we we lit a climbing structure. You know all those climbing structures you see in a lot of children's museums. All right, the Lucky Climbers. The Lucky Climbers. Um, well, this Lucky Climber uh, was for the Franklin Institute, and it was for their new brain exhibit. They built a new wing, and in and one of the galleries was for kids, and they put in a, a Lucky Climber. Uh, and for the first time that I'd ever seen, rather than putting the climber in a lobby or in a brightly daylit space, this climber was located in a black box. Uh, and the idea was to create this sort of sensory and creative, immersive experience that you were sort of working through a neural network. So climbing through the climbing structure was like climbing through a neural network. And so our charge was to abstractly create this sort of magical and wonderful place, mostly for children, although many, many adults, as you can imagine, are in there. 
And so we, we had to create this lighting design and lighting system to help elucidate this feel of being inside a neural network. And, and for me, something I haven't said to you yet, but I, I think about um, sincerely when I talk about light, is the connection of light and music. Even when you talk about light, you often use musical terms like rhythm and tempo and timbre and color and intensity. And, and to me, I could not imagine designing a kinetic lighting environment in this room without having some sound, without there being a soundtrack to the life of this exhibit. And uh, one of the uh, scientists who were, was working on this when we were having this conversation said, well, you know, I have this recording of neural networks firing, this, the actual sound of neural networks firing. And I just about fell out of my chair when I heard oh that. And, and then she played these sounds to me, which were outrageous sounds. And so I, I hired a friend of mine who's a sound designer, and we built this soundscape using those sounds integrated with the sounds of like human, human sounds, like singing and laughing and whistling and walking up a flight of stairs. And we, we mixed this soundtrack, which we then synced the lighting on the neural climber to. So this experience, as you can imagine, now you see it, you hear it, you climb, you know, you're basically immersed in this world um, that came out just terrific. And so I guess that would be another one that really, really excited me to be able to work on. Oh, that that is, uh, and I, I have I have seen the exhibition. I didn't know this story. I think sometimes the stories behind our installations are, are even more interesting than the installation itself. <laughs> about I didn't know that it was based on real science of what a neural network would sound like. Uh, who knew Who knew that there was even a recording of that kind of thing? Right. But that's why we go to science centers and and uh, and get experiences that we can't get uh, any other place. Uh, so, and then just to be clear, so you work on all different kinds of museums. Oh yes, yes. Um, as a matter of fact, I think the the the, the number the, the museums that are the smallest in our portfolio are art museums. Uh, we tend to be we tend to our our portfolio is very deep in science and technology, culture, history. Uh, children's museums. I think it's because of the because of our theatrical bent. Because we are so wanting to be involved in the creating the storyline and the arc of a visitor experience that 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 theatricality, that sense of the way we think about the world, lends itself to these other kinds of museums. Well, that. As I said, I don't think that I'm ever going to quite look at a, an, a, an installation the same again, but particularly, I think, with art museums, I, I, even though that you know, seems to be a, a, a smaller piece of the portfolio, but just how light does change. The, the, uh, here's the obvious statement of the day, how light changes how we perceive things. And that, that, Absolutely. That Absolutely. Is, just as important. Well, Steve, it has been fabulous to have you on the show today. Thank you for being on Museum Life. Well, it was my pleasure. It was, I, you know I love to talk to you, Carol, and I'm, uh, if we're able to help some of your guests, that's, that's terrific. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, I just want to say to everyone, remember to contact me at carol.bossard at verizon.net or at MuseWrite on Twitter. Love to hear from you. Uh, we'll have another great guest next week, so stay tuned. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Live. Thanks for listening.
Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.